How are you all? Great. It's cold in here. Yeah, I know. Deal with it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Hug each other. If you see your breath, that's just great. Don't, think, don't be like, oh, they're smoking in the sanctuary. I mean, they might be, but we're also just a little chilly, so let's get going. We're going to dive back in. We started, if you weren't here, we started in June talking very um, clearly and slowly through the book of Mark to really focus on the idea of what he said and what he did. And then we over, uh, took some time to do a different series. And then that's what we're going to be doing our rhythm over the next year or so. Hit different series, but kind of keep going back into the book of Mark. We're diving back into the book of Mark today. Mark chapter 6, verse 30. Let me read you the story. And as uh, often is the case when we hear a story that feels familiar, there are times we can go, yeah, yeah, I already know what this one's about. If you know everything I'm about to say, I didn't do my job this week. So just throwing it out there. Hang on. Mark chapter, th Mark chapter 6, verse 30. Story says this. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than a half year's wages. Are we to go and spend much on bread and give it to them to eat? I'm giving my own little voice inflection. <laughs> How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, and probably kind of, <laughs> we told you, Jesus, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divide, divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And when the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish, and the number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. This is a story about the needed rhythms of life. This is a story about wandering while we're thinking we're pursuing. This is a story about dependence. This is a story about patience for those who struggle to see. And this is one of just a couple stories that all 
four gospel writers wanted their audience to know and to hear. Father, I thank you for this morning. I pray that during this time of being together, for those in the Parkside rooms worshiping in there, for the many hundreds that are online watching, may we feel your presence and your spirit so real today. May the rhythms of our life be honoring and glorifying to you. Jesus, I heard your voice so clearly this week, and you just said, Dale, let's go for a float together. So may we all go for a float with you right now. In your name, amen. There's an ancient saying in the Roman world uh, that goes like this, Vox Populi, Vox Dei, which means the voice of the people is the voice of God. And they would say it as, the voice of the crowd must be what God really wants. Yet, but what we see with Jesus is that he listened moment by moment to the voice of his Father. No matter what the pressure, no matter what the expectation, no matter what the disappointment, no matter what the opinions were, he listened to the voice of his Father. And then he invited his disciples into those same kinds of moments, a float on the boat, a barbecue on the beach, a conversation in a house, a walk down the road, where he's like, listen to the words of the Father, to hear his voice, to hear his words. You see, Jesus didn't recognize the voice of his father in the clamorous anger or pounding of a crowd. He didn't hear the voice of his father in the pursuit of people running around the lake to be with him. He heard the voice of his father taking a float on a boat with his guys. He didn't recognize the still small voice in the screams of the people. The still small voice of God. It's different than what we think. We think God should have the loudest voice in the room, though he could. We think God should be in the thunder and the lightning and all those things, though he might be. But there's something beautiful and amazing about the still small voice. It's like when Lisa wants to communicate with me and I'm on my phone, she'll just say, I'll just wait till you're done because the still small voice of my wife is way more engaging than the loud noise of the phone. This idea of the still small voice comes to us throughout scripture, but it also comes to us through the Old Testament story of this guy named Elijah, some 900 years before Jesus was on earth. Now, it's always important whenever we read scripture, which I encourage you to do, and when we look at scripture, go, where am I in the story of God's story of scripture here? This is about 900 years before Jesus. Before this time, the Israelites had clamored for, we want our own king like everybody else has. We want a show of power. And God's like, I'm your king. No, we want a human king. 
So they get this guy Saul, so they develop a human king. But what God did, he's like, I'm going to put my voice with the human king. So he had these prophets come alongside the different kings. So throughout the Old Testament, when we look at the table of contents and you see all these prophets in there, they're alongside the kings. And what's so beautiful is that that's what man wanted. God kept his voice in there. And when Jesus came, it was the culmination as he was the king and the prophet. It starts here in a garden. It goes here like he, we want our people. And then go, Jesus goes, I'm here to be your Messiah, the Christ, which means king and the voice of God. But in this middle stretch there, a lot of the prophets got rejected by the kings. In fact, they got their lives threatened by the kings. And Elijah just had had enough. Let me read you the story. This comes from 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life because he had been threatened to be killed. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than any of my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and he fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals in a jar of water. He ate and drank, then lay down again, and the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and drank, strengthened by that food. He traveled for 40, that must have been a heck of a meal. One meal, you travel for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and he spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, and this is what God said to Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me. I'm not sure he really answered the question, but he certainly expressed his heart. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. It's almost like God said, these are all the things you think I should be, Elijah. A sign of strength, a sign of destroying things, a sign of like things that consume. But who I am is a whisper when you're ready to hear. Because that still small voice of God, it has to draw us into a rhythm of life that prepares ourselves to hear it. So what kind of rhythm, pause, retreat is needed to hear even this still small voice of God? How many times people have made requests to come meet with me and they're like, how do you hear God? 
And so often what I'll say is, tell me about your week, your weeks, your months, your day. Because it's not like we earn or live in such a way so then God goes, you've been good enough, I'll talk to you. But do you pause and say, God, what do you have for me? As Ruth Haley Barton writes, when we practice ceasing in the way God intends, we touch the very ground of our being. We experience ourselves to be creatures in the presence of our creator, beloved children who are cared for and loved as human beings rather than as human doings. You see, Jesus deeply understands the weight of being human, of navigating through a broken world because of the sin that we chose to do. And Jesus doesn't simply say, try harder. He simply says, I'll carry that for you. I'll carry that with you. See, a healthy rhythm is essential because the noise is real. And we get used to it. We just get used to it. Author Pete Scazzera writes this, the vast majority of us go to our graves without really knowing who we are. We unconsciously live somebody else's life or at least someone else's expectation for us. This does violence to ourselves, our relationship with God, and ultimately to others. It's living this vicarious like because of the pressure of who we should be as opposed to who God wants us to be. This often happens because the volume or the consistency of the noise around us, we start to drift to the noise of the crowd or the expected moral behavior or the enlightened, or as we used to say in the city and still do, the woke. I see things bigger now. But what I have found to be true is that there has to be a time where we regroup, where we reassess, because the noise can actually be blinding. The noise is real and the attack is real, especially when you're ready to make a move spiritually. During the pandemic, there came out this uh, series on ESPN about Michael Jordan. It was like these 10 episodes, two hours long, all the stuff around Michael Jordan. There's a story that came out of that. I think it was kind of like the director's cut, if you will. There's a story of one time the Chicago Bulls, and Michael Jordan, if you don't know, was uh, considered by some the greatest basketball player to live by a lot, but to some others, he was one of the top two or three. All I have to say is he's no Steph Curry. I know, I just sacrilegious to some of you. Frank, let your Chicago go. Let it ascend, Frank. <laughs> Receive the spirit of the Golden State Warriors. But there was this time they're playing the Atlanta Hawks and the Chicago Bulls were having their way with the Atlanta Hawks. And Atlanta Hawks had this player on their team that he was an NBA player. So, of course, he was a great player. But in light in comparison to other NBA players, his one real skill was three-point shots. So they brought him into the game to turn the tide to see if they can make a move. And Michael Jordan, often because he was an outstanding defensive player, would guard the best player on the other team. This guy Eldridge came in and supposedly hit three three-point shots in a row, and the tide started to turn. The fourth time down the court, he looked up, and Michael Jordan was next to him. And Eldridge says, what are you doing here? Because he's not used to getting the best guard. And the, the quote goes, Michael didn't smile. He simply responded, I'm here to stop you. 
Eldridge missed his next five shots and found himself back on the bench. Now, I'm not saying Michael Jordan is the devil. <laughs> what I'm saying is the enemy has his eye on what we're trying to do. And when you're ready to make a move, he's there to defend you a bit. See, last week I talked about the goal of the Christian life is just not simply to get to heaven, but to bring heaven right here. The goal of the enemy is for you to not do that. That's as simple as I can make it be. For greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Amen? Back to the story. The disciples had just returned from this ministry in pairs that Jesus has sent out. Go out two by two and start to now live out the things you have seen me to do so that you know I am with you. And they had an amazing, amazing time. One of the gospel writers, you know, references, like we saw lightning fall from heaven. Jesus, it was amazing. You should have been there. And he's like, I, I was. But he invites him into rest. He says, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves to a boat in a solitary place. You see, through this invite, Jesus identifies a couple of life's most dangerous things. And one of them is constant activity. Constant activity pushes away our ability to hear. And actually probably pushes away the interest even to hear. Constant activity pushes out all the relational impact and emotional stability that we might have. Constant activity is actually a false substitute for commitment and devotion. It's just movement. As Pete Cazero also writes, who you are is more important than what you do. Why? Because the love of Jesus in you is the greatest gift you have to give to others. Who you are as a person and specifically how well you love will always have a larger and longer impact on those around you than what you will actually do. But just as constant activity is a danger, so is too much withdrawal. <laughs> you see, devotion that doesn't issue action isn't really devotion. It's complacency. It's the value of filling your gas tank up full of gas, which may cost you like what, $1,000? You got a tank full of gas, and I understand you may not want to drive around because of the cost, but you're like, I got a tank full of gas. I can go anywhere I want, but I'm just going to park it in the driveway. But it's nice to know I could go anywhere I want if I wanted to. Withdrawal without action is complacency. See, the rhythm of following the way of Jesus is this. It's the alternating meeting with God in the secret place and then engaging with people in the marketplace. That's the rhythm of Jesus. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. The much needed rest collided with deep empathy and compassion for people. His response was not in response to the push or pull of the crowd. It wasn't because of the amount of physical effort they made to run from town to town just to meet them. It wasn't just, man, you guys worked so hard, you deserve me. It wasn't that at all. It was because of the condition of their soul. He went to shore. The sheep 
without the shepherd. What they saw was this physical miracle worker, so they pursued him. But they were spiritually lost without him was what he saw. You see, Jesus' moment, his action in that moment was really activated compassion. It's one thing to feel deep empathy and compassion for people. We talked about in our Together series that that's who we want to be about. But the movement of Jesus is activated compassion. Activated compassion is the literal heaven on earth response that we talked about last week. He talked about this in the story of the Good Samaritan. Remember when there was a man, many men, who saw this guy beaten on the side of the road. But because they had places to go and places to be, they just said, I don't have time. But the activated compassion of the Samaritan man says, I will pick him up, bring him to a place to get help. Because that's what heaven would do. Activated compassion is heaven on earth engagement with the woman that Jesus met at the well in the heat of the day. When everybody else pushed her away, he sat and listened. Others avoided the situation. He sat in the situation. That's heaven on earth. Activated compassion. This idea of sheep without a shepherd, we may not really get that because not, not many of us have sheep, nor are we a shepherd. So maybe think about it this way. A sheep without shepherd might be preschoolers without a teacher. A t-ball team without coaches on the field. Social media without discernment. Oh, we have that one all the time. As Dante once remarked about life, I woke up in the middle of the woods and it was dark and there was no clear way before me. You see, shepherds give direction. Shepherds don't allow sheep to eat in places where there is no food. Shepherds lead so their lives are without lack. Shepherds restore souls. Good shepherds lead sheep down good paths. Just as if you were in a store or a mall or some kind of public scenario, we see a little kid dart by you and you notice him and then your next look probably is, where is their parent? Is there somebody watching him? That's the response that Jesus had. They're like people, sheep without shepherds. They need something, someone to watch them, to care for them. You see, the people were not clamoring, we need a shepherd. Because the voice of the people isn't always the voice of God. The voice of God is the voice of God. Activated compassion, that's heaven on earth. By this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. A couple of things to understand here culturally is very common for each person to carry their own basket, especially an Orthodox Jew because they would want to make sure their food was clean and kosher. So they would each carry their own basket of food, responsible for their own food. And when they would run low, they would borrow from others, making sure they always had their space. So in many ways, this was a place of responsibility. Jesus, it's not our fault. They didn't take the responsibility of providing their own food. Or they need to go to spaces to ask for others for their food. When you ran out, you took the responsibility for yourself. 
we see in this scenario a deep contrast of how the disciples thought and how Jesus thought. The disciples saw, it's late, we're tired, send them away. Someone else should take care of them. But Jesus says, you take care of them. You give them from what you have first. I will backfill the difference. The disciples saw, don't you know how this will financially take from us? And Jesus says, well, what have you got? Just give that. You see, these life-changing moments, the ones that impact us deeply, we remember them. It could just even be like holidays. We remember holidays. We remember Christmas. I mean, what does Christmas to you look like, smell like, feel like? In fact, if, it, if something is off, you're like, this doesn't feel like the holidays and it's because it should smell a certain way or feel a certain way. And you remember those things. I remember how disorienting it was living in Maui for those few years. I was like, it's Christmas. It's still 82 degrees. And some of you are like, wow, poor Dale. I'm not asking for that. I'm just like, it just felt weird. So now how we countered it, we went to the beach every Christmas. But it still didn't feel like I wanted it to feel because we remember how things look and feel when they are transformational moments. And this is no different. As Peter passed this on to Mark, listen to how he described this situation. Then Jesus directed them to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish. That's all we had. And then looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were all satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. And the number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. This place went from chaos to serenity, to shalom, because that's what good shepherds do. This clarity of this moment for Peter and for all the disciples, to, for it to show up in all the gospels. Just pay attention to the wording here. The grass was green that day, my friends. The people, they sat in sections like beautifully planted and blossoming garden. There was organization. There was clarity of the resources. Man, remember that, guys? We had like five, we have like only five bread and, and two fish. Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember that. Man, that was amazing. There was a clarity of need. There's like, how many people there? Like, there's like 5,000 people there. Clarity of what's next. And at the end, remember how we had all our baskets full and we were so excited? Like, who do we go feed now? But everybody was full. Wait, maybe Jesus was saying something different. Maybe he's like, my baskets will always be full. Wait, whoa, remember that? I can't help but think that this human-implemented, heaven-powered response must have had a transformational effect on all of them. It must have had an effect on Peter and John. It must have. Because we know in this other story, post-resurrection, 
post coming of the Holy Spirit, Peter and John show up at this temple and see a need. It's not 5,000 men, but it's one man. But their response that when Jesus says, when you activate the compassion within you, you give them what you have, you can't give them what you don't have and enjoy what you're about to see. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money, this guy who had been coming every day to the temple. And Peter looked straight at him as John, as did John, and then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold, I do not have. But what I do have, I will give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk, taking him by the right hand, he helped him up and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. And when all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Because when you meet God in transformational ways, the heaven response is, let me bring that God with me. How, my friends, are we bringing the heaven into every space we have? You're like, I don't have that. But what has God given you? Give him that. This clarity of transformation when Peter's like, I don't have what you're asking for, but I've got what God's given me. How's that? Do we do this? Do we hear the voice of the people as actually the voice of God in our lives? Because when we take the voice of people and deductively attempt to create biblical support for what the people are saying, let me break the news to you. The voice of people have become your God. When we adjust our life, our purpose, our use of time, because the voice of the people are saying so, the voice of the people have become your God. So, what do we do? We allow ourselves to be shepherded. It's hard to remember for me ever to hear a teenager Scream out. What I need right now is a parent to tell me what to do. Even when I reject it, I know my parents are right. I've never heard a teenager yell that at me. But the loving parent keeps paying attention to no matter what the words are coming out of the teenager's mouth. The loving parent allows struggle, failure, even some fear, but is always present because the loving parent can be a good shepherd. I've never heard somebody yell, I need someone to help me be more closed-minded. Yet, we all long for clarity of thought, simplicity of purpose, identity, and some peace to counter the anxiety of the noise. I have never heard someone yell, I need for God to lead me to places I don't want to go. And I need God to reveal truths to me that aren't popular, and I need him to tell me to live those out. Yet we all have an inner longing within us, one that thrives when it's actually shepherded by the good shepherd. 
Let's sit before God for a few minutes and just listen to what he has to say. We take this moment every week in our services because the still small voice of God is not one of passivity, but it is so important. It deserves our full attention. God, what do you have for us today in this? The rhythms of life. Maybe ask God, God, what is it that you have given to me that you're just asking me, this is what I need to let go of. Jesus understands the weight of the human experience. He does. And he says, let me come alongside you and shoulder it with you and to carry it for you. For me this week, it was saying out loud to him, God, I give you permission to shepherd me. Which may sound so weird, but I just needed to say it, which means he's going to take me where he wants to take me. Because the voice of the people is not always the voice of God. The voice of God is the voice of God. So listen. What is the voice of God telling you right now? It's not for words of shame. It's never words of guilt, it's words of love, it's words of you are my child. I have you. I've given this. It's words of encouragement. It's words of challenge for sure. But words of challenge are not words of shame. Words of challenge are so you see even more of who he is. He's got you. Every week we respond. We respond by coming in posture of receiving communion We respond by worship and by prayer. But I'm going to invite you to stand, first of all, and we're going to start our time of response by all reading this Psalm 23 in a rewritten word way together to God. So I invite you to stand. Let's let's start our time of response reading these words, taken from Psalm 23 as the direction of our heart. Join me. Lord, You are my shepherd. Your provision leaves me lacking nothing. You lead me to and provide for me the greenest pastures, the quietest waters. Both of these refresh my soul. You guide me along the right paths for your purpose and your plan. Even when I walk through the darkest valleys, the most difficult times a person can face. I am free from anxiety because you are with me and stay with me to the other side. You're directing and correcting comfort me. You have blessed me beyond what I deserve and you keep reminding me that I am your child. I am confident that your goodness and your love will stay with me every day as I have remaining, we are with each other forever. Father, we give this time to you.
I invite you to come forward as you desire and be served communion in a posture of receiving. Our elders and leaders want to bless you and remind you of the sacrifice of Jesus so that we can celebrate that together. We'll have prayer teams on the side that you can give prayer for and just come before and we just want to pray over you. There's carpets to kneel if you want to kneel in a posture before God. And we'll be worshiping in song together as well. So come, let's respond to God's word together. Seems amazing that the size of you, Father, the power you have, yet you care so intimately like sheep without a shepherd that you don't fail. Sure, I've been disappointed, God. We've talked about this. But my disappointment is not your failure. My disappointment is just because I envision things differently. But you are the good shepherd. You walk with me through the valleys of the shadow of death to the other side. God, I pray that we all would see and know that in a real way. We love you in your name. Amen. As Danny shared, we would love for as many as possible to join us in the building we futurely are calling something, our space. Um, if you haven't been over there before, we'd love to invite you. It's the original space where the church met. It's looking all different and all new. The desire of the space is for us to see each other, for us to hear each other, for us to step into something new that God has for us. And we want to bathe it in prayer. So I encourage you to come on over and write a prayer on the floor. Please, brothers and sisters, if we've just been talking about being together, identify those who may not be that interested in kneeling down. Say, may I write a prayer for you? Let's do this well together. If nothing else, if you don't want to write a prayer, stop and pray or stop and celebrate or yell and hear your voice echo, whatever you want to do. It's a beautiful spot. It's going to be an amazing place for us. But as we go from here, let's read this from Ephesians 3 together. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we all ask or imagine, according to his power that is with work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God bless you, my family. God bless you, my friends. I love you very, very much. Let's do it again like you just sang. <laughs> Amen. I don't know how to end. God bless you. Go. That's what I'm talking about.